Inspiration and Isolation is a weekly conversation with Alaska artists about weathering isolation during the COVID-19 pandemic and what strategies and perspectives artists offer to manage this time. I'm Asia Freeman, Artistic Director of Bunnell Street Arts Centre in Homer. I'll be asking questions of our guests and you're welcome to as well. You can write them in the chat box feature in your Zoom window. And if you indicate an interest in asking your question aloud, you can do that when called upon to unmute your microphone. So this conversation is recorded and shared on Bunnell's podcast at, at bunnellarts.org, where you can also hear a lot of um, previous conversations. This is the, um, the eighth in our series. Joining me today are Francesca Dubrock and Michael Walsh. Welcome you two. We're super happy to have you with us. Francesca is chief curator at the Anchorage Museum. She's passionate about creative practice as a method of understanding the world, often collaborating with artists and community members to develop projects highlighting cultural diversity in the North. Before returning home to Alaska, Francesca worked as an artist, educator, archivist, translator, server, and briefly in wood conservation in Maine, California, and Mexico. Welcome, Francesca. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And Michael Walsh is assistant curator archivist for the Reuben Benson Film Collection at the Walker Arts Center, a college teacher of art history, film, and photography, and a studio artist. Michael has worked in moving image art since um, the early 1990s. He has curated programs for Korean galleries, San Francisco museums, and micro cinemas, Milwaukee's urban meadows and shipyards. Alaskan airplane hangars, bunkers, and mountaintops. Really happy to have you with us today, too. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Today, we'll explore creative life and work through the lens of artist as curator and how um, that work for you has been impacted by the pandemic. To start, um, I'd like to ask each of you to talk about what you've been doing for the past two months, roughly since the shelter in place order came down. You wanna start out, Francesca? Sure. Um, well, I was fortunate for the first major chunk of time until the past couple of weeks to be out with my parents um, at our family cabin, which is in between Chitna and McCarthy. Um, so I've been working a lot, but um, in the time when I'm not working, uh, we brought some camera traps with us. So we were um, camera trapping the animals that were coming around and um, I've sort of taken the opportunity to try and learn more about plants and just observe the seasonal change. I think um, we are lucky in some ways that this, if there is like a silver lining that it happened in springtime as opposed to like January. So um, I've just been trying to take advantage of that as much as possible. Wonderful. Michael, how about you? Yeah. What have you? Um, well, fortunately I, I didn't lose my job of curating is um, able to be done online as I'm finding out, which, um, so I've been doing, I've, it, strangely, you know, when you're working in, um, in your place of employment, you sort of have set hours, more or less, you know, give or take weekends or, so online has been um, fun and challenging just because it's, it's kind of all hours of the day. Um, but it's, it was kind of on a fast track because I think a lot of places, including the Walker and, and other um, many institutions were behind the curve, I would say, for online content. So there was um, an absolute flurry of, of um, ideas I know that was going through my head, and I know I was trying to respectfully tell the powers that be um, that, like, we need to, before this pandemic, that we need to have more content available online for experiences. And, and being a moving image curator, it's like we, we've been set up this for for years, you know, so, um, and we have a vast collection. So we were able to, fortunately, our department kind of be, we were more prepared than other departments at the Walker to um, provide content uh, for online experiences. So probably for the first three weeks to the first four weeks, it was an absolute flurry of kind of chaos, more or less, of like behind the scenes, <laughs> through emails and Zoom meetings and 
it, it was it was absolutely uh, tiring, exhausting, scary, and fun. Um, but the best part, if I could say, there is a best part, like Francesca said about the silver lining. Um, personally, was that I was able to return to Alaska and and not have to deal with more of the urban experience of this pandemic. Which, um, of course, I think there's a little more stress involved if you're in an apartment building of 800 people, you know, in a small studio apartment or something, mm -hmm. as opposed to living in Homer, where it's definitely real and um, scary but a, a little more fresh air to to breathe as yeah as we all need during this time because that really has been um for me a saving grace is to be able to walk outside freely yeah um so let's take a step back um from the the context you know of the past couple of months which thank you both so much for just kind of orienting us but tell us a little bit more about your artistic practice what is it or what what was it? <laughs> <laughs> I like the verbiage on that. <laughs> I think when uh, you and I spoke, Asia, the other day, I used the term lapsed to describe my artistic um, life. But I, I considered that um, further and I decided I like the word uh, hibernation better um, because I feel like um, I started um, as an artist painting, I went to school for painting. And then as many people do, um, like stopped painting immediately and started doing things that um, I had no idea what I was doing. So learning um, on the fly. So making videos and doing sound projects and installation. And, um, and I feel like my art practice has definitely slowed. It hasn't completely dried up. But, um, but it's, it's, it's become a quieter, I think, element of my life um, since returning home and starting to work at the museum. Um, but it's still there. Uh, and I've, I'm starting to let go of some of my frustration around not producing as much um, and thinking of it more as like a time of incubation and maybe, mm. um, maybe uh, expressing that like creative need in other ways in my life and being a little more compassionate rather than flogging myself for not making things all the time. Mm. Just to, um, to help me have a better sense of it and, and all of us, um, describe maybe the most recent project or if you are willing, one that might be in gestation just so we can have a, mm. a deeper sense of a creative practice. Well, um, oh gosh, it's, I, so one project that I would like to create at some point um, is um, based, well, it was inspired by a piece I, I made with my dad, actually. Um, some of the folks on this call will remember it, Jake. Um, but uh, I, <laughs> this is a kind of a long story, but I learned that my dad um, what, he he's always meditated growing up. He always had a meditation practice, but I learned um, when I was in art school that he was practicing this kind of meditation when I was a little girl that was, I think it's transcendental meditation where you actually try and like float. Um, and I found that so fascinating um, and weird. And also like, it seemed like there was a real corollary between being an artist and this kind of, um, I don't know, um, this like yearning um, for this, these like impossible things um, that I thought was um, cool about that. So we kind of wrote a little script together about the experience he had of flying, like as if he had actually achieved flying. And then, um, we, I recorded it and then um, got like a radio transmitter and transmitted it to like a radio wave and then had it playing on a clock. <laughs> anyway, there's a lot of, <laughs> but it was this kind of disembodied, it was really intimate. Um, it was sort of about um, a lot of things, but uh, 
but I think my art practice has always been like really personal, kind of spare, very like inward looking, which is very different from the stuff I do as a curator. Um, uh, but that piece um, has kind of stayed with me as like a touchstone. And um, I recently have, have been in touch with, uh, with a teacher in town who teaches about climate change. Um, he's a high school teacher and he's uh, got a very philosophical kind of like viewpoint on what it means to be teaching children um, about this impending catastrophe. And um, his name's uh, Brian Smith. In case anyone wants to look him up, there's an Alaska um, public media article about him. He used to teach at Polaris. But anyway, I've been doing some interviews with him to try and um, develop another sound piece, um, kind of investigating those ideas. I think ever since moving home, the idea of climate change has been um, really much more um, constant presence in my life. And it's definitely something that creatively I'm thinking towards as well. So. Mm. Thank you. That was a really lovely exposition of a bit more of what I, what's going on in your mind. Michael, how would you, um, how would you describe your artistic practice? Well, I've, I've, uh, I'm happy to say that I don't have one. Um, and it's a great relief actually. I, uh, <laughs> for 30 plus years, I, um, went through the ups, the downs, the joys, the sorry, you know, like everything that it is in, in anybody's life, regardless of what uh, medium, what occupation you are doing, but art really can provide all of those things to great um, intensity, you know, and, and I, enjoy, I really enjoyed that whole process. But after when I really started to recognize how much like, I mean, it's, it's, it was totally an age thing, you know, when you start getting to a certain age, you start to realize, you start evaluating expectations and hopes and dreams. And um, I never thought I would be having those thoughts. And then I realized like I was having a, a lot of negative connectivity to my art practice um, around primarily expectations and, and really ego. Like, I mean, it would be tied to that directly. And then that became, um, I don't know, that was just a negative experience to me. So I found actually a lot of joy and uh, peace within myself if I could, to, when I didn't, when I stopped making. Um, it wasn't necessarily a conscious thing. It just, when the curatorial practice took over more and I started to realize how much joy I got out of um, that experience and how much um, passion it was, it was. It was just a slight shift because it's still working with similar capacities and similar uh, synapses you know and all whatever the medicals or scientific terms would be it's just not um in the studio and and i really get uh, a lot of i don't know to, to to work as a as a curator to me i i it is a an absolute honor because i i feel i don't um i don't know i feel like i I didn't like i didn't go to school for curatorial practice you know and a lot of people have to go to school for that to get a job as a curator and so I feel like I have um, this great uh, I don't know I just really artists are very underrepresented in all mediums without a doubt and to have a position where you are able to help artists that are um, underrepresented perhaps and, and are very eager and very excited to share their work and to find ways to share their work is um, I get, I, there's just more pleasure in that these days than a studio practice, which I hope to someday to return to. Um, I'm, I'm not counting it out. I just, I feel like I'm sleeping better at night these days, actually, because of, <laughs> I don't know. And there's probably a couple people listening who, who aren't really aware of your creative practice, Michael. Maybe you could describe a, the most recent project or one that you were, you still think about um, something that feels somewhat active in, in your mind? Um, well, I have about four unfinished projects. Uh, so whenever I do get to the making again, they're just sitting there. 
Um, but primarily all moving image. I started in the arts in 1990 with uh, accidentally falling into an experimental film program and just fell in love with the art form. Um, and so all of, uh, I, I became a painter, a, a painter, a self-taught <laughs> painter, because I ended up working at the school that actually Francesca did her graduate work in San Francisco, uh, the San Francisco Art Institute. Um, and, and I just loved the paint, the smell of paint actually. And so for a while I was like, I just want to make uh, paint. I want to paint. So I foolishly did. And, um, but it, it all, and I thought I would stop making films at that point, And I did for about four years, but it just, something was, was uh, knocking at the door. And then I just opened that door back up again. I haven't stopped or prior to this curatorial practice. So it's primarily moving image, experimental moving image, non-traditional moving image through installation, expanded cinema, and just single channel, non-linear works that, um, um, and most recently before I stopped, I was working with, uh, I really had a lot of pleasure making a few works with Adele, who uh, um, you all might know, <laughs> at uh, Bunnell Street Art Center, just as performative works. Um, so I really, began to value um, over the last five, six years, the, the experience of collaborative experience, because for most of my time making art it was very, it was individual studio practice where I would shoot the work, edit the work, try, create a screening experience around it and, and then put it to sleep. So it, 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 there's a lot of joy in the collaboration process, um, which probably ultimately led to the curatorial practice because it's, that's what it's all about is, is working with the artist and trying to find out the best way to, to present their work and in, in, in their vision. So it's um, um, experimental. So just building on that, because that's like really my next question is, is um, how, does, how does an artist make a decision to become a curator? Do you want to sort of keep gliding forward on that segue, Michael, and talk about why you got into it or how you got into it? Sure. Um, I, I, I didn't realize I was uh, a, like a curator for uh, many years, but I had been in 19, like 92 or so, 1993. I started film school in 1990. And I realized early on that the only experiences that people were able to have in Milwaukee were to were in the film department at that program. There was no, there were no screenings in warehouses, cafe or wherever, you know, now in any given town, practically in America, you can, in America, you might be able to experience that now, but there was nothing happening outside of the film department. And I was seeing all these great works being made um, and nobody was seeing them outside of classrooms and teachers. So I got inspired to, to program works and put them in warehouses and on buildings and, um, and so it was, it, but I didn't call it, I didn't even, I never, I didn't even call myself a programmer, let alone curator then. So for in 20 plus years of just doing this, I realized when, and, and this is not at all a knock against curators because there, there's a, a great history with the importance of that. But I, I realized when um, people were using that term, when I would like walk by a friggin' plant store and I would see like flowers curated by, you know, or like a damn window at a, friggin' drugstore or something, you know, it just be like, really? So I started to identify with like, wait, I've been doing this. Um, and then I just, and then it was that slight shift. And then um, coming up, continuing to come up with ideas to have, ex to present um, underrepresented works. And, and, and I'm saying specifically, like when I moved to Alaska, there, there's, there weren't really, many and there still I don't think are too many experimental filmmakers up here so that that art form um, a lot of people are unaware of the history of it the makers of it um, and even the the experiences of viewing that and certainly so I um, made it a, my mission to try to do as many to promote as many experiences uh, as possible and in order to do that I felt like I needed to take ownership around it and um which meant talking about it speaking to it uh, explaining it educating in a very respectful manner you know not like authoritative um so i i just it was it, in a sense just purely organic how it happened for me I, I, 
it, uh, and I'm grateful for that because I feel like I have the artist, um, not that like a curator who would take a traditional path of curatorial practice wouldn't have the artist in mind, but I think if you're an artist first and curator second, or you come from the arts as an artist, studio artist, you have, I don't know, there's just a little, to me, it's like I almost want to eliminate the curator and just have the artist, you know, present. Because I, I think there is, um, on the larger art market, there really is, uh, I find, a, a somewhat problematic that curators have often the top billing of shows, which makes no sense to me when when it's the artist without art without artists there would be no curators so like it uh, how that curatorial practice has jumped up to this prominence makes sense in some circumstances but really has in other circumstances gotten a little out of out of control you know where so i, I i'm i'm hoping to never do that <laughs> yeah. thank you what do you think francesca <laughs> yeah, well, I'm similar to Michael in that I don't have a degree in curatorial practice and I kind of um, came at it sideways, I guess. Um, so I was uh, working in a contemporary art gallery in Mexico City for a couple of years um, and it was very um, sort of... Um, a real nexus of like a kind of global um, art scene. It was just a very, a very major scene there. And I, it was awesome and I learned a lot, but I, I ended up getting a little bit grossed out by just the commodification of art um, and um, what art becomes when it's being produced and sold at that level. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, you know, started to reflect on what was valuable to me about an art practice. And for me, um, it's always been um, a way to kind of test the limits of the world to like make a space of like mental freedom um, in your life and to ask questions and point out things that maybe aren't um, working in our society. Um, and so it really felt like it was more of a method of being and a way of knowing. And so I started to think maybe education would be a better like field to express what um, I care about um, in the arts. And so I ended up going back to school for a degree in um, education. And um, at that point I was, I had been away from Alaska for a long time, like 13 years. I'd come back, work summers, waitressing and stuff. But um, but I really was ready to come back and I was um, looking at the museum and there was this guest curator position and I pitched a project that was this like very socially engaged, like educational <laughs> hybrid crazy project and um, and they accepted it. So that was sort of how I I made my way into the field. Um, I, similar to Michael, have a lot of kind of questions and curiosities about how we think about curators and um, and how they work. And I, I do think the times when the job feels richest is when you really are collaborating with an artist and having that kind of exchange where you're both like feeding off the energy of the project and excited about it um, rather than, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes I'll admit it can feel um, like a lot of project management and sometimes um, that's when it's a little bit less um, sweet, but, but yeah, that's how I came to the, to the work. Great. Thank you. Um, and I wanted to ask, you know, do you feel like, um, do you feel happy as a, as a artist in hibernation? Do you feel like mm -hmm. your curatorial practices is, is um, cannibalizing your artistic ideas or fueling them? What's I, so I was thinking about that. Um, and I think I have a happy, I mean, I, I'd be curious. Um, I think Michael seems like he's 
he's found more of like a pragmatic balance between the things. Um, I think both being an artist and being a curator really are, um, you're served by being curious um, and being um, scrappy and like comfortable with, um, oh, what's the word, with unknowns. Um, and so I think that there are kind of like little superpowers you pick up from working as an artist that um, translate well to curatorial work and that, um, that are fun to exercise in, in that role. I think um, being a curator, you get an excuse to learn about lots of things that you maybe wouldn't otherwise learn about and work with lots of different people. So, so my sense of kind of curiosity definitely feels um, full in the work. Um, sometimes I, I do feel though that it requires a different part of my brain. So shifting between, um, you know, whatever artist brain and, and curator brain um, doesn't always uh, work super fluidly. Um, Not when you're so, writing a press release. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> or you're on your 78th email of the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You were talking, Francesca, a little bit about um, curiosity and the opportunities to indulge that as a, as a curator. Would you be interested in telling us a, a story about a recent project, you know, that explored such a curiosity and maybe brought an artist living or deceased to life in an interesting way? Sure. Um, well, I think just, again, looking for silver linings in this um, under the theme of isolation, um, one of the, you know, immediately when we closed, um, I was still working on some, and I still am working on some projects that we intend to open in the physical realm. Um, but uh, about half of my work transitioned to making digital things. Um, so I borrowed my partner's fancy mic and, um, you know, revisited my somewhat limited skills in video editing and started like recording these videos in my dad's closet, which is the most sound insulated part of the cabin. Um, and uh, so that was, that's been really fun. And through those video projects, I've had the opportunity to talk to artists and to do research, living artists and do research on artists who might not normally get where that are in the museum collection, but would probably um, almost never get put on display. Um, and there are a bunch of, of different ones, but maybe one little anecdote I'll share is um, this painting by Fred Makatons. It's a portrait of a woman um, and it's titled Mia Walk. And um, I'm working on an exhibition about women in the North and I had seen it in the collection and just from her bearing and, the, and her expression, she looks like a leader. And so I had just nominally like thrown the work in the area that would deal with leadership. Cause I was like, well, I'm sure this, there's a story there. And when we start doing research, we'll figure it out. So then we started doing research and um, we couldn't find anything at all about this woman. And I was like, how is that possible? You know, it's this beautiful portrait. Um, and so we started asking around and ended up getting connected with this woman's um, great granddaughter, um, who's named Ella Anagik in town, who I actually uh, went to high school with her daughter. So um, anyway, she explained that uh, Fred had mistitled, had misspelled um, her great grandmother's name, which was Maya Gook, and he spelled it Miawak. Um, and so she was able to share basically a full um, story about who her great grandmother was and how she came to know Fred Makatans and, you know, in her own voice, provide this rich context um, and story to um, the woman in the painting, which was a really fun, um, I mean, those are like moments in, in curating that are just 
rich and rewarding because you're working with real people and um, and getting to showcase, uh, you know, stories that are, you know, maybe otherwise wouldn't um, come to light. So that was a fun one. Mm. Michael, I know that um, you, um, you know, we've often talked about how, um, how obscure the, the genre of experimental filmmaking is and the artists themselves. And, and you must be tortured at times by the number of really obscure um, films and experiences that you are kind of positioned to share. Um, I, I was wondering, and you probably have a story that you want to tell, which I totally encourage, but I was thinking about the situation with Bruce Bailey and his passing and how that all kind of went down at the Walker. I wonder if you could talk about how, um, at least you mentioned to me that he passed and you were gonna write something and how the, the, the Walker initially responded and what, what ended up unfolding. Is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, by the way, Francesca, that was a great story. That, that's oh, really an it? incredible discovery. And that, that is one of the joys that, if any, that, that being a curator, which I just is like an absolute privilege to experience because there's no other role, you know, unless you're a preparator or something, I, I don't, to, to be able to dive in and discover that it's such, those are those moments that just like completely lift you up, you know, and sail you on to the, like, however long until if you're fortunate to get another experience like that. So that's really, that was a great story. Um, well, I don't know if anybody, any of the people here know Bruce Bailey, but he was a really important filmmaker. Um, started making films in San Francisco in uh, late 50s, 1960, 61, and he started Canyon Cinema and the San Francisco Cinematheque in 1961 just by simply um, putting a sheet up in his backyard with Chick Strand, another colleague, experimental filmmaker at that time. Um, purely to show films of their friends because there was no venues at the West Coast at that point to show experimental films. There were no distribution companies to distribute films like that. And so they they just threw a party and had a had showed some films and that just inspired them to create a screening venue and a distribution um, venue or a distribution uh, nonprofit to allow these works to be screened. And, and he just completely, I mean, his, his films of, from 1961 to 1971, I mean, I don't know, he made about 25 films and probably 20 of those 25 are just brilliant, gorgeous, absolute works of art. And, um, and definitely in the experimental film world, he's been known and, and outside of it, definitely had got to uh, get known more because what was a brief history of the art form, what started to happen, these, you know, back then they were sort of like the bastard children of the arts, you know, and, and where the galleries weren't showing works, museums weren't collecting um, these works yet. And, and until digital format started to get a little more um, viewable and, and nicer to look at and, and artists were allowing their works to be digitized. And then all of a sudden curators and historians were seeing the path of, of like the, the art form of the moving image and makers like Bruce Bailey and Bruce Connor and Brackage, you know, and some of these cats. Um, and bringing them into the history, into the fold, because it was very well known at that point where the history of video art and stuff. So um, what happened with, with his passing, um, and, 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 and I was still even a little like, um, like I experiencing, like I have to argue even at times, respectfully argue like and defend like experimental film, <laughs> even at a place like the Walker, who's been a champion of it for so long. Um, but it, so when he passed, like right away, I thought like, holy shit, you know, like minimum, we need to put something, acknowledge him somehow. We need to like an Instagram post, a Facebook post, something. And, and it was getting nowhere. Nobody was like, wow, I've never heard of him, you know? And it's like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, or it's like, it's, it's too depressing. We're in a COVID right you know, like you can't have, and it's just like, listen, this guy, like not only was he a major con contributor to the arts and moving image arts, we have like, I don't know how many pieces, like eight or 10 of his films in our collection. And he had about 20 um, screenings, group and solo screening experiences. So it was just like, I was pulling my hair out. So I just went ahead and wrote uh, and wrote um, an obit and, and let the powers that let the cards sort of fall. And eventually it got, it got um, 
to uh, the, the powers that be that said, yes, we need to acknowledge him. He's a very important person. So it was, it, it, I just, it just really pissed me off actually, but I, I didn't yell. I didn't even send an inappropriate email. I just patiently waited and wrote the obit and gratefully they published it. And um, I don't know, you know, he, 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 uh, I, don't know, I was glad. I, I was glad that it happened ultimately, it, it, where it was released, because he really, to have the have a place like the Walker not acknowledge that would have been a real, real shame. And I'm still coming into that on a really on a weekly basis, having to defend the art form, um, even at a place that is like has such a history with the art form. I, I, I was a little like, feel like I, you know, sitting in the same chair for all these years, you know. <laughs> I remember. Actually, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to just say, um, I was curious to ask you and maybe a little bit of you, the frustration in this experience um, indicates what your answer might be. But, um, but I was thinking about, um, you know, the experience of moving back to Alaska and, um, having a really different sort of um, social milieu and artistic community here. Um, and, you know, art uh, feels sometimes like a little bit on the margins um, at, at times. And experimental film, probably like 10 degrees more extreme. Um, so I was just curious also to the topic of isolation. Um, whether you, I mean, there's probably very few people that understand and connect to, to the form in the same way you do um, in general, but probably even more so in Alaska. And if you find that sort of isolation frustrating, or if there have been moments where that's been kind of liberating, um, and you have the opportunity to introduce people to something new, um, yeah, that, thank you for asking. It was, um, I moved up here permanently in 2003 and for probably until I got the job last July, what is that, 19, 16 years, um, probably 12 of those 16, I, I, it was a great pleasure because I, I, I had a lot of fun um, playing or not playing or introducing people to the experience whenever I could. And I w wasn't even an like, I didn't go on this, like, I'm gonna, I would just want to show films that I really loved. And I thought people might appreciate if they were able to see, get their eyes on them because there wouldn't be any other opportunity to do so. Um, but after a, a decent number of years, it did become a little frustrating because I, I, what I was really missing is getting inspired by seeing work. And I found it, very hard to see work up here that was inspirational in the moving image context. I would get great inspiration by paintings, you know, what Nathan Schaefer is doing with augmented reality and, uh, and VR experiences that were emerging and changing every friggin' weekend, it seemed like, or every six months, you know, and what Jesus was doing when he moved back and what um, Jimmy Rear, you know, like, and, and so like I was getting great inspiration from other artists, but I was really just craving craving and dying to see experimental work because I, I wasn't able to see it up here and, and that that became that was sort of like the final thing for me it's like I just need to I need to return to be around um an art form that speaks to me in that way uh and I was great I, I mean I st <laughs> still can't believe I got a job at the walker you know it's like I don't know what they got what they were thinking but um I feel very grateful to be around that, to have a collection of 1,500 titles to work with and, and to program works and curate works when I can. Yeah. Well, um, what, one thing I was thinking about um, that relates to both of your sort of observations is that, so you wrote that piece about Bruce Bailey and it sort of just sat there. And then the next day, I think it was the New York Times published a thing about Bruce Bailey and then a couple other places. And then the Walker looks at their guy. Yeah, and like, art, oh. the art Forum did, Art in America did, New York Times did, like all, and they were like, oh, I mean, any other, <laughs> like, oh, I guess he is important, you know? Yeah. So um, let's just take a moment and check in with some of our, 
our listeners to see if anybody has um, a question. I've been sort of ignoring the chat feature, and um, I want to invite anybody who might have Arjun a question. Has one. To come I see Arjun. Yes. Do you want to unmute and and share your sure, question? You, uh, is are people able to hear me? I always yes. Have to check. Yes. Hello. Yes, we can hear you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, well, I do have some questions that are a little bit more related to uh, curatorial work. Um, and my first thought was, how do you both think that this experience is going to change the future of visual works when it comes to curation? Is it going to influence what your decision making is? Is it going to influence how you plan to have viewers in person? Is it going to affect any of that, um, do you think? Yeah, um, I, I have a couple of thoughts off the bat, um, just ranging from pretty uh, prosaic things. Um, to, to more um, sort of big picture in the future things. I mean, Michael mentioned early on um, that he was thankful to be working um, in time-based media because a lot of that is digitized. Um, I think for starters, that's something all museums are going to be thinking about is how to have greater digital access to their collections. Um, certainly something I've been um, advocating for um, at the Anchorage Museum. But we're working on exhibitions right now that are planning to open in the fall. And um, yeah, there's lots of stuff like bodies flowing through space. I mean, really simple things, um, but like we can't have headphones on videos anymore. Um, you know, we always try and have an interactive space. Um, mm -hmm. And those will likely um, disappear or become more um, like sort of policed and regimented. Um, and you know, just for myself, I think a lot of the projects I've worked on have been socially engaged projects, which like literally rely on people being together in space and doing things together, like you know, cooking or you know, just being in the same room. Um, and so I thought a lot about, um, you know, those projects tend to be um, to more explicitly address um, sort of social concerns and political issues. And those feel like projects that really need to be happening right now um, and that we'll need to find new ways and, um, of finding expression uh, because we can't, won't be able to gather as readily. So, um, yeah, I think there, there are lots of considerations from, I mean, I'm hopeful that, um, that we'll come up with creative solutions and, um, and workarounds, but, uh, but there are lots of, it, it definitely on a macro and micro level is something that is affecting how I think about stuff. Yeah, I know it's challenging for, on, on many levels, um, for at least at the Walker, we're probably similar experiences where it's a slow opening, any headphone experiences are out. The cinema won't be opening. We have a, the, probably the dreamiest part of that job outside of being responsible for these 1500 titles in the collection is we have a world-class cinema where we can do 35, um, 16, full 4K. You know, like it, it, it stated there, it's just like, I get goosebumps every time I go in the booth. Mm -hmm. and, and so we'll be unable to, um, there's no scheduled screenings at this point. We're hoping by December we'll be able to um, because they're still trying to figure out the protocols, you know, of cleaning and distancing. And um, so it, it's, it's extremely challenging. And I don't, you know, I actually think it's it, right now is a great time as it always is for um, the arts, but especially time-based work, because I think, like I, all I want to do is just go out and do screenings in parks, put them on buildings, like get a boat and float down the Mississippi river and have a, you know, like, but like we're unable to do any of that, but artists can do it. They don't need to get permits. They don't have a count, you know, they don't have to deal with like infecting somebody though. They do, but there's less like accountability around that. But I, I think there's ways that, um, 
and, and I'm and I think it will be happening with institutions with time to be able to um, create these experiences and some people already are doing that and some people have for d decades prior but I think it those um, transitional experiences are going to be really vital and important because I don't when we ever do get back into the cinema it won't be the same when we are able to put a headphone pair of headphones on that don't belong to you that you don't have to clean after every use that's going to be a long time from now and and so it's you know it's it'd be a great time for artists to have a painting show on their roof you know if you have a flat i mean so it's it's i think it's a great time it's a very challenging time to be a curator but it really i think a an opportune time to be an artist if, if anybody and any artists are interested in not just a studio practice but presenting their work without having to go through an institution to help that you know yeah. just guerrilla style man yeah, yeah, totally. And and to kind of branch off of that, you have both kind of mentioned in, in certain ways um, about the challenges of, I, I know Francesca was talking about her experience of finding commodification in some of the arts world. And I have been reading a lot of editorials about kind of how this moment is an equalizer for people who are patrons of the arts because the art world is still seen as very uh, insular at this moment in time, insular or privileged or anything like that, and how everybody being at home kind of has this equal access now. But I've also been seeing kind of more recent uh, opinion pieces about how this might kind of be a rubber band effect and it will just kind of increase that in the long run so i wanted to know your general thoughts on how do you balance um that kind of world in your personal work and choices with your own voice like how do you balance your voice the voice of the art world around you and just what is your what is your how do you guide yourself in making those choices and imbalances I could, well, there's two things I'd trust, um, trust yourself. Uh, and, and that's just built on, um, having, uh, in a sense, actually having that insular experience it, because I mean, art has always been insular. It, it, I think it, depending on what medium you're working in or what medium medium, but I mean, it, it, it's, it's extremely insular. I think it always, always has been, and it probably, unfortunately, always will be. But that's a really, um, I mean, if I could say it's an important part of it, actually, only because that's really where relationships are built and friendships are built, but that's also where eyes are built, and that's where intuition mm -hmm. is built, and that's where communication is built. Because I think where if you're in an, ex if you're in, um, I mean, we need inspiration uh, in order to make or to curate. We need um, experiences, but um, I don't know. It's it, trust, <laughs> trust yourself, and 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 I'm not promoting insularism because I think that's actually can be the destruction of a of of an art um, community because when you don't have someone or artwork that might not be as popular or might not might shed a perspective that isn't as um, engaging i just think we need to uh always question um and 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 find ways to communicate around around these experiences because i know when you don't have that communication when you don't properly i don't know about properly but when you when you could critique something and it's really um might be uncomfortable but we need to we in order to have a strong community in the arts you really need to have an open mind and you really need to be able to communicate honestly about what you feel because how many times that probably everybody on this group is if if you've asked somebody what you thought about a piece of work if it's yours or somebody oh that's nice you know or like it doesn't get much deeper than that it can <laughs> yeah. and hopefully and that's where that's where it really lies is getting into that um conversation of being open being honest being unafraid to speak um about uh, an artwork a medium about an experience um that's the way you grow, you know, and so that's the only way an insular community can grow is if, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're just open. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with what you're sort of saying in terms of intuition being um, a, a tool and a guide. I think just on a sort of, maybe I'll speak to the more practical side of things, um, that I do think in some ways uh, there is an opportunity in this. Um, you know, the museum is fairly expensive to access um, physically. Um, and so the creation of, of, you know, more comprehensive, rich digital content definitely will give uh, broader access uh, to folks who are um, not museum goers physically. Um, and I think that that is one potentially like exciting and, and cool thing. Of course, there's lots of people who don't have an internet connection or a computer, so um, we're privileged in that way. Um, but I mean, to, to this, I, I don't know, the art, the art world in quotes feels like very far away from Alaska to me. So mm -hmm. I don't, um, I don't really concern myself too much with, uh, with, um, I mean, I, I'm interested. I'm, I'm following some of the same articles and like, I'm curious how the whole like, jet set art fair, you know, crazy world will adapt to this new reality. But I, I don't, um, it doesn't really impact how I do my job here um, in Alaska, I don't think too much. Okay, and, and kind of one more thing to trail off of that, and then I'll let you go. But um, what, do you have any advice or suggestions for people that are um, fairly new to the prospect of either creating exhibits, um, sharing their work publicly, um, working with galleries, institutions, uh, because there are so many uh, people, especially here in this state, that are at the level of they're fairly new, but they don't quite know how to go about that, and they don't quite know how to engage in a community to, to get feedback and growth. So do you have any recommendations or knowledge that you can share with people that are fairly new to exhibiting and um, really being involved in, in the arts? Um, <laughs> do you want me to go first, Francesca? Or sure, go matter? ahead. Yeah. Well, I, what, you know, um, I think what's in, again, it comes down to trust and, and, and vision um, because without art, we wouldn't have curators. So like always remember um, like really artists are in the driving seat. They're driving the truck, uh, but though it sometimes might not feel like it, especially if you're in your studio by yourself and you have a body of work and you don't know how to get it out and, and be seen. And then that's where I would suggest creating something that um, at least whenever I, because when I got into it, it was like uh, underrepresenting or representing underrepresented work. And it, I tried to create an experience around it that would be memorable, that wouldn't be, um, like people would think about it the next day. That's an, a, the, the best case scenario if actually somebody retains a memory of it. And in order to do that, try to create an experience that is slightly, um, that might not be on walls, might be leaning against alder trees or hanging in alder trees or on a fishing boat or, you know, something that, that might be uh, to grab somebody's attention. Um, or if it needs to be on walls, then, you know, whatever it takes. But, you know, I, I, I just, in, I encourage um, creativity and the representation of it as well. And, uh, you know, I think it, people notice more when you have to hop on uh, or go on a, you know, a muddy low tide to see some artwork, you know, as opposed to taking your shoes off into a gallery, you know, because galleries can be even up here a little stuffy, you know, and, um, and, and, you know, I don't know, I don't want to diss that four wall experience because that's still extremely vital. But um, I think creating a memorable experience for your artwork is, is always helpful as well. Yeah, and I think I would just say, um, 
a couple of really basic things like um, seek out other artists or art professionals and, uh, you know, ask to have coffee. Um, it's a small state and a friendly place. And um, I have, you know, coffee with people all the time. I actually don't really like coffee. So that's one thing that's been <laughs> nice about this time is it's transitioned to phone calls um, where I can drink whatever I want. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I, I think doing one thing that I don't, doesn't happen so much with Alaska artists, but that I see a lot from other artists that drives me bonkers is when people like don't do their research and I get these like email blasts with this like Italian artist who, you know, makes something that is like totally not a good fit for the Anchorage Museum. And I usually respond, you know, with a brief statement of our, our mission statement and say, could you explain how this project you know, relates to what we're trying to do here. Mm -hmm. So I think it's incumbent upon artists to do their research to to know where they want to show. Um, what, like to Michael's um, point, like what type of experience would serve your work? Um, who do you want to see it? Like, um, you know, I, to to really think um, about that, and then even. Beyond that, um, in a more formalized setting, I know there are uh, opportunities for um, artist development sometimes offered through the Rasmussen Foundation and the Anchorage Museum occasionally also has um, classes um, and, and sort of professional development um, opportunities. So you should keep your eyes peeled for those kinds of things as well. Um, Good questions, Arjun, thank you. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Arjun. Um, we don't have a lot of time left, but I, I'd like to um, ask you each to talk a little bit about um, the changes that um, you are sort of metabolizing in your curatorial practice under COVID. And um, what, um, what opportunities do you see? I know that you know we've talked a lot about the the restrictions that are going to come down, but what kinds of things do you see um, opening up, or what experience might you have had recently with the Walker at Home or the Anchorage Museum at Home, as you referred to, Francesca? You know where people have this um, new access that um, that excites you. Can you speak to a specific project or experience? Um, I don't know if I would, I mean, speak to a specific um, project beyond um, sort of these like videos and interviews. I actually spoke to Tamara yesterday. She's here in the group. Um, but, um, but I think one sort of vital thing about this time is to sort of really reflect on how we might best serve um, our audiences and what is um, relevant or important to talk about and create right now since resources are um, more limited. Um, I think also um, just as being on this call, it's like so nice to see everyone's faces and the variety of different environments people are in. Um, I think that, um, at least for me at the museum, it's like inserted a bit more um, personal sort of care and awareness in and among coworkers in a large institution um, and a sort of blending of, of the public and private that that seems um, the sort of personal and professional overlaps that that um, I don't know to me feels um, friendlier and um, and uh, nicer, just nicer to to sort of have that connection with your colleagues. Um, so I don't know. I think I don't know the answer really to that question yet, but I'm looking forward and sort of thinking about the things that I've 
um, dare I say, like enjoyed about this time or enjoyed working on and like how to pull those things forward as we like transition to whatever normal is again, um, how to hold on to the things that, that work and that are good. Well, I think, um, there, uh, Rika has a good question she brought in about the pandemic experience and the shift towards relevant subject matter that I think is, you know, time will certainly tell, but I know what my intuition is telling me is that, um, and, 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 and part of that is just what I'm craving. And I do am finding that I, I think in talking with people, artists and um, colleagues at the Walker, it's like, you know, what we don't need right now, I think is a bunch of like, I think we're all, we need to, I think we need to return to things that are important, like love, family, um, meditation practices, like quietness, uh, experiences that don't rile us because all you have to do is turn on any form of media and you'll get pissed off within seconds if you're hearing that shit fuck president of ours excuse me or any of his any of his people talking i mean what we don't need is i think um this urgency that uh often work pre-pandemic was bringing us um i think it, it might return in the fall or winter possibly and even in the coming years but personally i feel i think we need we need that it's this moment of retreat into uh, as we're all physically doing into contemplative states of, of practice, social experience, lack of people. Um, so I, I, I think just quiet space, man. I, I think um, I'm, I'm, I know I'm programming things in the fall and the very few slots we have now because our budget got just completely slashed our works that, are promoting local um, filmmakers uh, in the Minneapolis area and works that are more um, um, meditative or works that uh, that bring oneself inward uh, as opposed to that might get you all friggin pissed off sitting in your seats, you know, or sitting at home in your computer. So I, I think that um, I think it's important to I mean, time will tell, you know, I just know right now I I get so angry that I want to scream and I don't think that is the, screaming definitely helps, but I think what for sustainability looking inward helps. I think um, there was a, a way I heard it phrased the other day that was uh, said um, impacts over outputs. And I think, um, yeah, museums can get, I think caught up in, this idea of outputs um, and reconsidering to Michael's point, like what you're putting out and why and how can you make what you're doing more impactful um, and resonant um, since everything really needs to be meted out carefully. And, um, you know, we're not taking anything for granted, I guess, right. at, at all anymore. And we all need to laugh as well. <laughs> That that's, a, that's a good question, Rika. Well, thanks, Michael. And I think you answered, pardon me for just bursting out, but I, I that's kind of what I was looking for is more of a local look and a, uh, uh, a new view. And we don't want to go back to normal as it was. And so I, I'm more interested in how it could be or how each one of you are feeling um, and it makes me feel more connected because we're all kind of feeling similarly. And I, I feel that that's more relevant now than touting some big artist, you know, that doesn't really have rele relevancy to us more locally. And just as thinkers and makers, it's kind of our job to make the new world the way we want it to be. And it's, it's our job. Yeah, artists are driving this truck, man. And, and curators and yeah. presenters. All of it um, is to create that new world that we all want. Yeah, and, and I, I, I'm excited to see what work is uh, being made and yeah. will be made because of this. Because yeah. I'm just gnawing at the bit because I, uh, 
and there's a few things that I've seen that are really relevant and, and that are topical and that are created since this experience. Um, so I, I'm, I'm excited and, and that's where I'm grateful for every artist that takes the, the leap to do it, man. It's hard to actually put yourself on the line to make something and then to present it to somebody and then to more than likely many cases of your life have it rejected. I mean, and then to do it again and again and again. I mean, it really, artists are without a doubt, it's been proven through the centuries, through the millennia that they are, in my opinion, the most important people living in and their words are most reflective. Um, and we just need to listen, you know, and yeah, it's, we just need to listen. So don't stop making. <laughs> yeah. But even words like essential, essential workers, you know, or, or, or yeah, all right. of that has a new context. And how mm. can we recontextualize things to view? I love this whole idea of equity is becoming mm. much more talked about. And what does yeah. an essential worker mean? And who's the hero now? And anyway, it's, thank That's you good, so much. Good point, Rika, good points. As yeah. always, you brilliant woman, you <laughs> brilliant <laughs> artist. Darling, you're so darling. Thank you both so much for such a great conversation. I feel like we could definitely carry on. Um, and uh, this, this conversation, inspiration and isolation continues. Next week, we're gonna feature some really um, dynamic and resilient youth uh, from Homer. And we're gonna talk with um, Asa Panarelli, Ella Parks and um, Drew Wimmerstedt. So I'm looking forward to um, uh, returning to the conversation with all of you and any others you think might be interested. You can look back at previous conversations at benellarts.org and also go to Anchorage Museum and um, walkerarts.org to see the things that these two marvelous curators have um, been working on and are sharing with us today. Thank you. Take care. Be well. Thank Thanks, you. Everyone. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Thanks, Asia, Michael, Francesca. Bye. <laughs>